founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Matt Brewer, the president of Choke Construction. Choke Construction provides design, build, pre-construction, and management services for the construction of commercial and public facilities. As president, Matt adds depth to the Choate's executive team, supporting Chief Executive Officer David Priester and and executing the company's long-term strategy, culture, and tactical operations. We are pumped to have Matt on the podcast, so let's jump right in. Thanks for being here today, buddy. Thanks for having me, Drew. Yes, sir. Well, we're going to start where we always start, which is for you. The difference in this podcast is uh, you may not technically be the founder, but you are the current president. So we're going to take more of a personal approach and hear your story and what were the series of events that led you to where you are today? Uh, Well, that's a big question. Um, You know, I grew up in the development industry. So my father is a real estate developer. Uh, had a uh, several Century 21 offices, didn't like managing people, ironically, so <laughs> managing brokers, and ended up getting into development in the 70s and 80s. And so I grew up, you know, doing horizontal uh, land development and a little bit of commercial, a little bit of vertical, uh, but always had a passion for building things, right, growing things, and uh, not as much on the people management side, just on the business management side. Okay. Um Ended up going in the Marine Corps after uh, high school and served four years in uh, California, overseas, uh, Japan, was able to go to Russia and Korea and wow. travel the world a little bit, which was really, uh, really exciting. And, um, you know, my father was a Marine. My grandfather uh, served in World War II. So uh, I think maybe the service side of things, um, certainly I embraced from that family heritage. It was never really discussed that uh, my father never really asked that I would join the Marine Corps. I think sometimes people, people have assumed that about me. Oh, wow. There must have been a lot of pressure for you to do that, but that really just wasn't the case. Um, I just saw what he did my grandfather and thought it was a a good thing to serve. And so I, I served in the Marine Corps for four years and then I went to college. Uh, I got a degree in economics, not construction. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then at that point in time, um, you know, I got engaged uh, in my own business and um, I had a little, uh, well, a retail store that led to a second retail store. And uh, somebody came along and wanted to buy the two retail stores. And at the same time, I got extended an offer uh, to come work at Choate, uh, really on the business development and relationship side. And, And that brought me here. So, uh, what year was that when you were first offered to come work at Choate? You know, that was 2004 when I joined Choate. Okay. I'm, I'm curious, what was the, um, if you look back, what do you think the motivation was to, to join the Marine Corps? Well, I think it's, it's really just that my, my father and my grandfather, um, you know, served. And I just really thought that was cool. I, I love the dress blues. You know, I would see my father's uh, uniform hanging in the attic and the picture on the wall. My mother used to have a picture of my father and my grandfather. 
And uh, I'm, I'm a Christian and it was a religious verse. Um, you know, thou, uh, there are no greater gift than a man may lay down the life for his friends. Yeah. I thought that was really, um, you know, just really impactful to me that the true essence of service and what our veterans um, have done for our country and what they do every day. And it just really gets me energized to know there's people out there that serve and are willing to sacrifice so much for the rest of us. And I thought that was a really important calling. So that's, that's what I did. Oh man, that's so cool. What was it like getting to at such a young age, getting to experience so many different cultures? You mentioned several different countries you got to spend some time in. Uh, what was that like? Uh, it was amazing. Um, you know, I know everybody's probably not cut out for the military, certainly not the Marines, but um, I, part of me believes that it, everybody would benefit from some type of service like that. Just being able to see the world, it's, it's uh, helped me uh, certainly formulate who, who I am, just that exposure to different people in different cultures. But um, for me, it was amazing. You know, I was stationed in Okinawa for six months. And uh, I was, if I wasn't scuba diving, I was uh, flying and uh, I was a crew chief for Hueys for a helicopter. Mm. So a door gunner, basically, if you see the guy flying around at 140 knots with a 50 caliber machine gun, you know, you're 21 years of age, <laughs> living. it's, uh, it's, it's kind of tough to leave. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, just a great experience all around. So what made you, what, what, what was the tipping point for you to decide to, leave the Marines and go into the business world or go to college and then to the business world versus being a career, uh, military person. You know, people have asked me that. And the truth is I never considered uh, a career in the Marine Corps. Hmm. My father, my grandfather served uh, during world war II uh, and came out. He was drafted. My father uh, was an officer in the Marine Corps. He went in, uh, served uh, pre-Vietnam, uh, and got out. Neither one of them ever wanted to make it a career. They just wanted to, uh, to serve, at least my father. And then for me, that was it. I knew I would go in, serve my four years. I, I think I lacked the discipline uh, at that point in my life, like a lot of young uh, men and women, and knew uh, I was smart enough to know that I probably wasn't going to succeed in college the way that I wanted to. Mm. And uh, and for me, it was go on the adventure, build the discipline. And man, uh, if there's one thing the Marines do well, it's build uh, teams and discipline and a lot of things that certainly have shaped me today. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so what was uh, what was it like starting at Choate? Where did you start, and what were those early years like? Uh, so in 04, I started in business development. And uh, the irony was, uh, like I said, someone called to buy my business. And I think within three or four days, I received a call from a recruiter. Um, never spoken to a recruiter for before in my life, you know, certainly never given them an application or I wasn't looking for a, a career uh, at that time in construction. But, I, you know, from my father's business, I had relationships with different uh, industry people, with architects, with civil engineers, and uh, someone had given them my name. And just looked, looked to talk to this guy. He knows a lot of people in town in that industry. And uh, and so they, they they reached out to me. And my first response was, I'm really not interested. I don't think that's the right fit for me. I'm, uh, my father's an entrepreneur. I really want to be, uh, you know, kind of do my own thing. And, um, and then, like I said, over the course of a week, we ended up cutting a deal to sell my business. And, and I thought, you know what, the more I learned about Choate and their culture and their core values, I thought, you know what, this, this really sounds like it could be a good fit for me. 
And um, why not leverage something that I'm, I feel like I'm good at and see where it goes. And the rest is history. That's awesome. So give, help me understand a little bit more of, of the business model. So you're doing business development. What kind of development work uh, was Chode in at the time that you were responsible for? Yeah, so uh, business development at Chode is, is, you know, kind of everybody's responsibility. Sure. And that ties back to our relationship of, of um, I'm sorry, our culture of relationships. And uh, I like to say Miller Chode, our founder, you know, the, the black and gold Chode sign that you see on the highway, it's been changed one time in our in our existence. And mm. that's the tagline, reputation is everything at the bottom of it. And that's our mantra. That's the essence of, uh, of you know, our culture here internally and externally at Chode. And so as a business developer, you know, we all are here to build relationships. Mm. Our philosophy is that uh, we've never chased sales goals. We've never, we certainly measure and we're accountable to that and conscious of that. But we've never, um, as an organization, really looked to say we want to be this much revenue. We want to be you know, this big of a contractor. Our focus is on building relationships. Uh, and, and if you're building the relationships intentionally with the right clients and the right sectors, then the revenue will come, the profit will come, the repeat work will come. And so, you know, the business development side to kind of boil that down is about building relationships. Mm. Uh, it's about building We've got another saying here, we don't pursue projects, we pursue people, we pursue clients. It's I love that. Yeah, rare to see our, our uh, business developers talk about, we really want to go win this job. You know, there are jobs and there are projects that certainly we want um, and we compete for. Um, but most of the time, our focus is on building long-term relationships with like-minded clients. Yeah, let's talk about that uh, that motto. Reputation is everything. That's uh, I really like that and resonate with that. Where did that come from, and how have you seen that kind of played out in in this career? Well, um, I think it was about I don't know ten, eleven years ago was when it became a formal part of our logo. Uh, but it was really the essence of what we've done since inception, since Miller Choke founded the company. And uh, I think it just took us a while to realize how important it was. Mm. And uh, at that time, we had grown to the size company that we said, time out. The culture is great. We recognize what we've created. Um, but it's time for us to put our big boy pants on and, and, and let's really define our mission statement. Let's define our vision. Um, let's put down on a piece of paper what our core values are that make our company great. And um, and a lot of that boiled down to relationships. Yeah. So, yeah. What's, uh, I'm curious, when you guys felt that need to get more formal about that kind of stuff, what size was the company at that point? Uh, we were uh, seven, eight hundred million a year if you're measuring by revenue. Wow. Uh, you know, sub, sub one billion, but we had we'd grown steadily over. Uh, you know, How many people were part of the organization at that time? Say around 350. Wow. Okay. That's, that's typically a little, a little later, not that it's good or bad. Just, I'm just making data points in my head. That's typically a little later yeah. than you would feel that pressure to formalize some of that stuff where the organization has gotten bigger than just the organic reach of the founders and the few people. 
Um, that's interesting. What was it like to be that far along in the business and then kind of do some of that, that work on what are our core values, our mission? Was that difficult? Was that easy at that point? What was that like? You know, it was really, it was really easy to be honest with you. We certainly spent a lot of time and there was a lot of debate in our leadership team and, and how we asked, uh, you know, kind of pull your employees and you go through a process as I'm sure you're familiar with, but it was easy in that we don't pick the core values, you know, yeah. it's really about determining what our core values are. You know? Yes. Created and we've been through this process and it's built itself. And I'm a firm believer that, that, that leaders can certainly influence and we should be influencing the culture of our company. Uh, but our values are really, you know, created by our people, the people we've hired, the decisions we've made, and, you know, what we've done to get to where we are. So it was kind of easy in that effect. It was basically taking inventory of what good we've done and what we've created. That's awesome. Yeah, that's one of the, so, and in, in, uh, in my line of work, we, I'm a coach. So we, I run a, I founded a coaching company for people development. And one of the mistakes we often see if someone invites us in to do values is they have aspirational values, right? They're trying to create them, uh, which never work because it begins, it becomes the thing you're always aspiring to, but never embodying, right? And right. the more effective thing is to do exactly what you guys did and say, no, let's discover what we already embody and codify that, put a name to it, put some, uh, some action to it, right? Uh, and it's so much easier because it's who you really are. It's it's the actual greatness inside of your culture that you're just taking the time to kind of excavate and make uh, concretized, right? Um, so, man, well done to you guys. That's that's a mistake that we see a whole bunch of companies make is these really great sounding aspirational values that aren't actually embodied by the culture, right? Yeah, you know the the, the trigger the trigger for that. Uh, which I think was part of your question, I don't know I, that I answered, was the growth. We realized that we were growing at, at a pace to where we were fearful our culture would change. Yes. That the ability, uh, you know, for us to maintain our growth, we had to hire people and we realized the importance, like many other companies, we, by hiring the wrong people, um, we realized the importance of being very intentional with who we bring on, how we onboard them, to, uh, to not water down the culture that, that's made our company great. And that's when we ultimately came back and said, look, we've got to put these clear vision, mission, values in play so that people are conscious and aware and we can protect what we've worked hard to build. So pretty cool. That is awesome. What, what does that look like for you and, and for your company to really make those values an actual part of the the decision-making or the hiring or like, so they're not just on the wall, but that you would say like, these are actually important ingredients in our culture. What have you guys done to, we use the word weaponize and like weaponize the values. Sure. Sure. So our, our core values, just to be clear, are safety, uh, operational excellence, stewardship, innovation, integrity, and relationships and uh, safety probably makes a lot of sense right in our life sure. it's what we do uh it's very critical for us that we bring our people home uh the people that work around us our business partners that are on our job site home safely every day 
and safety is paramount and should be in any type of organization, certainly in the construction of our industry. Um, the operational excellence is, uh, it's a founding hallmark of Chote, you know, bringing our projects in on time or ahead of schedule, executing with precision, running uh, well-organized and orchestrated job sites. So these things that Miller Choke built into the DNA and we found at our company, that's what's that's a key ingredient for making us successful. So we do things like training uh, through our own board, uh, Choke Academy, where uh, you know it's our online training uh, system. We've got video uh, recording sessions from uh, thought leaders here in our organization, external content. Um, wow. Things like that from an operational excellence standpoint, all kinds of mentoring and training and job site training and very, very involved in that piece of it. Uh, from a stewardship standpoint, uh, we've got several systems to weaponize uh, that our, our company offers a, a matching program. So we match uh, any employees uh, contributions up to $1,000 a year to a 501c3 to incentivize them to give back to their community or, or things that they're passionate about and mm. support them in that way. Um, our offices uh, support a number of things in the community through initiatives where we'll get together, you know, typically an office two or three times a year, we'll go out and do a day of service and, uh, and serve again in something that the employees pick, uh, not typically the division head. It's a, you're an employee owned company, by the way, if you, if you notice that and, um, and, uh, and, and schooling up on, our, uh, I didn't see that or this, this call. Yeah. So six years ago, we became a employee owned company in ESOP. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, wow. that's, that's a conversation in itself, but uh, certainly a big part of the stewardship side goes there. And then, um, there's a number of things, of course, integrity like safety stands on it on itself. We put systems in place to make sure our people are uh, incentivized uh, to be good stewards of our clients' money and the company's money and that we act with integrity. Um, uh, innovation uh, is a big one for us. And we're, we're not a company that believes in change for the sake of change. Um, I think there are some industries where that resonates and makes more sense uh, in our industry. There are standards and norms that, that are, we need certain rigor and consistency for periods of time. And then there's a lot of areas where innovation um, can really benefit a company in ways like our virtual construction department and the way we allow our um, employees, quite honestly, to be entrepreneurs. Yeah. We don't have so much rigor in what we do that that we don't take full advantage of the talent and the intentionality in hiring the people that we've hired. You know, we give them a lot of autonomy to do what's in the best interest of their client, their project without being micromanaged. And, and that all boils down to the last one relationships. If I'm a firm believer in Dave Priester, our CEO now, uh, if we have one thing in common, it's this. And uh, I'm a firm believer that if you, if you, been intentional with who you bring in the organization. If you've hired the right talent, um, you know, empower them, put them in the place, and then let them let them run. You know, give them some leash. And man, what amazing things can happen. Occasionally, you bump your head. I've sure that, but um, the good so much outweighs the bad if we've been intentional and hired the right people. You know. Yeah.
Well, I've got like four or five things that you just talked about. I want to touch on. I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with the last thing you said while it's fresh. Uh, talk about hiring the right talent. Uh, this is so hard, even if people make it their aim to, you know, value and recognize like, Hey, it really matters who I hire. You know, maybe they use Jim Collins language. Like we need the right people on the bus and you know, we need in the right seat, you know, that kind of thing for you guys. What are some of the keys that you've found? I know no one gets a hundred percent, right. There's always a risk that you thought it was the right person. It ends up not being, but over the years, have there been anything you've found that has helped you filter uh, and find what you would call the right fit for your, your culture? Um, you know, our process here uh, has been fairly refined and we've spent a lot of time in the last five to seven years dialing that in again to due to growth. And um, you only have to hire the wrong person uh, once to learn that in your career. You know, I, yeah. I remember the one that keeps me up at night and I hired a, uh, a head of operations and um, it was a key position and, and it was the wrong hire. And I knew within uh, two weeks, it was the wrong hire. And uh, fortunately I had the stomach to make the change, but that was a disruption to um, not only that, that person's life, um, but the employees that he touched in our organization um, the disruption, both financially, but just emotionally in that particular division, uh, that's a stain, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult thing to overcome. And sure. Have, but man, if we can avoid that and the resource and emotional drain on both parties, that was a real eye opener for me. So, uh, for me, instituting a, a three interview process where, uh, every employee coming on board gets a minimum of three interviews not just by a senior manager, but by a peer. If it's a young man or woman coming out of college, that person speaks to someone in their role to learn what life is really like at Choke in that role, you know, without Matt Brewer sitting, sitting there looking over their shoulder. Uh, we want them, no buyer's remorse on either party, right? So right. If you want to be part of an organization, you appear to have the resume, but beyond your technical ability that I can more easily see on paper, we want to get to know you. What, yeah. what drives you, you know, and you ask those interpersonal questions um, and then give them free reign to look around the company and ask their questions. If we can, if, if they know what type of organization we are, which I'm sure we're not a fit for everybody. Yeah. Um, but if they know and we know, then our retention goes way up. Our job satisfaction goes way up. Our profitability sees that. Our customers see that through lack of turnover, through employee morale, and it just makes everything hum. And boy, if we can get that working in the right direction, it just, it makes life fun. It makes coming to work together and uh, just enjoyable for everybody. And, and that's a great thing. That's a powerful thing. No, oh, it's huge. That's why I ask. I mean, you, you know, they've, t they've talked about it in the past. Um, when you have, let's say it's like a skilled salesperson that gets the numbers, right? They are just a superstar, but they're cancer, right? They are, you know, causing drama. They don't get along with people. They maybe cut corners of integrity, things like that. Sometimes you get into that decision of like, well, they put up great numbers, but they're killing the culture. And it's like, man, you got to get rid of them. I remember that was, that was advice Bill Campbell 
uh, I think had given like Steve Jobs. He was he was like, you got to get rid of that person as fast as possible. Like protecting the culture is utmost, right? Protecting oh, yeah. that team, that integrity, all that kind of thing. Have you guys seen the same thing in your industry? Without a doubt, without a doubt. And uh, you know, I'm I'm very blessed in my position because uh, Dave Priester. Um, uh, handed me the reins with a great culture and we worked together as a leadership team to build and uh, my job what keeps me up at night is maintaining it yeah yeah the company is growing and like I said we've we've invested so much into hiring onboarding we've got a very uh, you know intentional onboarding plan that allows uh, our people within their first week to really experience our company to get jumped in with both feet uh, to, to be assigned a mentor, uh, to take inventory of their personal goals and then regular check-ins to make sure that they're happy and growing in the direction that we committed to them when they came in the door. And, uh, and I think it's through that intentionality that we can filter out a lot of the people that, uh, that are like-minded through the interview process. Yeah. Actually gravitate towards that. Well, it's so interesting. We started off the conversation with you talking about how early on in your career, you didn't very much like people, but you liked kind of doing business. And now you seem to have a true joy for leading people and are doing a really great job at it. What do you think the change was? Well, I said my father uh, didn't like um, uh, managing people. <laughs> oh, you were talking about your father. Okay, I misheard you. Right, right. Uh, but in my role, you know, working with him on developments, there wasn't a lot of, of, of uh, there was managing people, which of course there's a distinction between managing and leading. Sure. And uh, managing external, you know, designers, partners, things like that. Uh, but we didn't have a large employee base where we really wanted to cultivate teams and, uh, and build a synergy like we do here at Choke. But I would say certainly my passion and enlightenment to, uh, to this topic has grown immensely in the last, you know, five to seven, really 10 years. And yeah. Honestly, is the most fun. It's the most important part of what I do every day is mm. people and build teams and put people, like you said, in the right seat on our bus. Yeah. Uh, well, tell me about Chode Academy. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. I want to know more about that. Yeah. So Chode Academy is, is one piece of our, you know, educational uh, employee development program. And uh, that's a platform that uh, our employees can log in. Uh, everyone has an account and they can uh, access information developed internally to the company um, or externally things like, uh, you know, podcasts, for example, Patrick Lencioni, uh, Daniel Goldman, you know, different books, summaries, things like that. And, uh, you can just log in, and if you can want to learn more on leadership, you can type in leadership and number of things. Uh, if you want to learn technical safety uh, or scheduling or things like that that are very uh, specialized in our industry or for a project type, you can do that as well. So it's a platform for our employees to grow in areas that we believe and that they believe are important for their personal career growth. Wow. How long did that take to put together? It never ends. <laughs> it's people, always being updated. Yeah, it's constantly being updated and, and revamped. And uh, that is apart from an innovation standpoint that we're constantly uh, rethinking and adding content to and deleting content and evaluating and 
Uh, training is a big part of our of our business. You know, making sure people are highly skilled and effective uh, in their job. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, how, 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 how? What's the question? I would be. Are there a a lot of people taking advantage of it regularly? A few people taking advantage of it? Like, you sometimes we create brilliant stuff like that, but does it? Does it get used? Does it get, you know, forgotten about? Like, how, how has that been for you guys? You know, it's a full spectrum, Drew. Um, we have people that, that just love it, and we've got different badges you can earn. You know, there's all types of little fun things in there. You can earn cool. uh, uh, little virtual badges, you know, and there's competitions, and there's a leaderboard, so each of the offices can compete. The superintendents can compare themselves to other superintendents or project managers, and and you can compete to see who's becoming more educated, right? Who's taking more courses. And, and so there's some that really thrive in that competition of self-help. Um, and there's others that learn through different ways. And so our, our goal here, uh, so, so in short, yes, yeah, some are more engaged through that platform than others, but uh, the self-development and development of our people doesn't end or really begin with spooks. It's one of several areas that um that we are platforms i should say that we provide and i'd say more importantly or certainly equally important is the mentoring aspect sure and um you know the personal development and time that we have all levels to invest in their peers and their subordinates and um you know again some people will learn more with face-to-face with hands-on training um than sitting in front of a screen others sure in that environment so we, we try to recognize that and offer offer different platforms god that is so cool uh i love that you guys are doing leaderboards and badges and things like that are you are you intentionally drawing from some of the research on gamification or just intuitively know that people like rewards and stuff like that and competition i think it's it's just intuitive you, you know there's there's a lot of people that that drive and thrive on on competition and that's certainly something we look for as part of our recruiting process you know okay who has ambition as part of their dna uh, and um you know never settles for for where they are for where the company can be for where they can take their client where they can take their team and and so it's kind of natural that, that some are going to really thrive on the, the badging and the competition of, of self-help, right? Yeah, absolutely. The reason I ask is that's a that's a point of interest for me and my business partner right now. Literally before the podcast came on, I was listening to the Audible book called Actionable Gamification by UK Chow and uh, was just learning about gamification principles and theories because it it does feel like uh, something that would be worthwhile to tap into, right? Like, why do people get so addicted to games? Why? And this was his, his story was he realized in college and, and just outside of college, he was wasting thousands of hours on getting really great at something that didn't improve his life at all. Right. So he's like, here I am like mastering these games. But when I actually turn the game off, my, my life hasn't been improved. And he thought, why, why can't I figure out what's making me be this dedicated and disciplined in this it apply, but apply it to things that would like would improve my life, right? Like my career or my relationships. And so this has led this, this person down a decade of research on gamifying things like work and gamifying things like personal growth. Uh, and that just intrigues me as well. He calls it human centered design that we would start thinking and designing things that are human centered, not necessarily result centered. Right. 
that if we think about the human and we get them engaged, results will follow. Very similar to you saying, hey, if we build relationships, right, and we we build trust, like, of course, revenue is going to come. But we're not actually directly targeting the revenue. We're tar- targeting the relationship. Um, his concept is very similar. Like, if you can switch the person on where they love, what it, whether it's competition or personal gratification from having grown, like he talks about eight different factors. I'm geeking out right now. Sorry, but eight different factors uh, that you might resonate with a few of that cause you to engage with games. And so it's different for everybody. Some are more intrinsic, some are more extrinsic, some are more around social dynamics and belonging. Some are more about personal challenge and growth and achievement. Some are around fear of loss. Like I don't want to not have this. And so I'm motivated because I don't want to lose. Right. Um, and I'm in the middle of that right now. So that it's, that's very powerful stuff. And I can tell a lot of what you're reading is uh, certainly resonates with my way of thinking. Matter of fact, I'd like to get a copy of that book. I'd like to write that down. So yeah, I'll make, well, I'll make sure we send it to you. I'll send it uh, to you after the podcast. That's very kind of you, Drew. But you know, I think what it's very powerful, what you said about turning that on, finding what makes people tick and turning that on. And, um, and that, that excites me because it goes back to the hiring process. Cause not all of you've got to start with the right building blocks and not all people have them. You know, yeah, yeah. They've gone through school and and, and came to a, a recruiting population that we would consider, and and so we're looking for those rough characteristics, those rough values in people. And then, like you said, you take a concept that you're studying and you really refine it, and you turn on those key things that drive them to excel in those core values. To excel yeah, those core values and. Man, that's that's great stuff right there. Yeah, that's why I geek out on it. I'm I, the reason I got into the business. I was in I was in ministry for almost ten years, and then got out of that into into coaching and into business. I've just always been driven by people's potential. Like I love and geek out on seeing someone grow. Because I mean, I had a client yesterday that was for thirty minutes humbly bragging about his growth, and it was because he had surprised himself. You know, and it was that feeling of like, when's the last time you surprised yourself yeah. versus the the habitual patterns we get into and we just, everything seems like, yep, I, this is what I always do, or this is how lazy I always am or how productive I always am. And when you actually make growth, you go, wow, like all these possibilities are now open if I'm willing to change and I'm willing to grow and adapt. And uh, so now with business, it's the same thing, like crafting cultures and approaches. Anyways, uh, I'm curious as we're talking about these drives and switching your people on, I'm, I'm curious about you. What drives you? What What are some of the things that really motivate you and get you fired up about what you do with your life? Well, um, since you said my life and not my company, you know, my, my family obviously drives me. I have a, a wife and, and two kids, one boy, one girl, and, and they certainly motivate uh, me. Um, I, I really, like I said earlier, the, the, for work, the most important thing to me, what really drives me is the people. Yeah. And it, it sounds cliche, but um, I really enjoy engaging with the different people in our organization. I love the hiring process. I love sitting uh, at a table with our executive management team and strategizing, charting the course for where we're going to go the next 12 months, five years, 10 years. And, um, and leading that discussion, but really engaging them because we've got some exceptional leaders uh, in our organization. And, you know, you can just ask a question and sit back. And we've created a culture and environment where 
um, where, where everybody's free to speak, you know? Mm. And, um, and I really believe that if, again, if you've hired the right people, you've put them in the right position and you turn them loose and you created that open culture, that open environment, which really goes back to being an ESOP, right? We're all owners. So that level of transparency permeates throughout our organization and what we do. And, and if you can do that and get people engaged at the highest level through the entry level, everything really, really works. And that's the exciting thing for me. It's the engagement part. You know, how can we wake up today and get every employee engaged to the best of their ability? And, and what you're really talking about is maximizing their potential. That's right. You know? Oh, I love that. Yeah, when you are when you're engaged, you're present, you're present and you're alive, right? Like if we take that out of a business context, it's like the business world is relearning a word that everybody already knows, you know, like if, if, if you were just out of the context of business, you'd say, is that person engaged? You'd mean like, are they here? Like, are they here in the moment? Are they enjoying the party? Are they, are they connected? Are they alive, excited, passionate? Uh, and now we're realizing like, wow, that's actually a key to you performing well at a task or a job Absolutely. that you're like pumped to be at work today and that your, your brain's firing and you're not falling asleep on your fifth cup of coffee. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do. I, I do. love it. Most of our offices now have sonos, you know, we've got music jamming up and down the hallway. Let's go. You go back and you see people's toe tapping. We didn't have that 10 years ago, but little things like that, that just, yeah. How can we get the energy up? How can we get people talking more? How can we get better collaboration? Uh, you know, again, I'll, I keep throwing back to my Marine days, but uh, a foxhole, you know what a foxhole is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I know by theory what a foxhole is. I've not been in one. Yeah. So for, for our audience, you know, a foxhole, um, you know, Marines, when they go to battle, they, they get dug in, you get entrenched, you dig a, a six foot hole that you and your you know, one other Marine would get in and that's where you, you bury down, right? You hunker down in your sleeping bag and you, you wait for the enemy and you're, you're, you're protected there. And so, um, you know, I like to think of it that way. What we want the type of employees here uh, to be engaged, not only for themselves, but for helping the other people in our office, the other people yeah. in the organization. So it's about self-help. It's about bettering yourself. It's about maximizing career uh, maximizing what we can do for our, for our customers, but what also can we do for our, our fellow employee? If I finish my job and I'm ready to go home and I see the guy or the gal struggling in the foxhole beside me, you know, who's in the pit with me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Am I by myself and how can I walk down the hall and help that young man or woman out? And that type of spirit, uh, is really embodied with a lot of our employees. And we're really trying to grow and cultivate that, it goes beyond teamwork. It really means that you care. You really care uh, about the people that are in the organization, you know, and that's yeah. the thing if we can harness that. Yeah. Have you seen, uh, I'm sure you, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the concept of the phalanx. Have I'm, you heard of that before? So it was, um, it's debatable. It's uh, it's debatable who started it first. Something the Greeks did. Something it was older than them because like Oedipus talked about it. But it kind of revolutionized hand to hand combat back in the day, uh, because it used to just be like a melee. You know, like every man for himself. Chaos on the field. And then at some point, people started organizing them into units. And then the most powerful 
version of that it was you'd see it like in movies like um 300 or gladiator or things like that where the way it worked is like there'd be a wall of people with shields but what i found so interesting is my left arm holding a shield would cover the right arm of the person next to me right and so you weren't just defending yourself actually you were responsible for defending the person next to you which would free your hand up to be able to strike because that person was covering your right arm, right? And then you'd have someone behind you who would bring a spear down and you were protecting them. And then there was rows of people behind you that would hold the line and kind of reinforce you so you didn't get pushed over. And it was just a beautiful picture, even though it's in a bloody picture of war. But if we can just take the metaphor, it's like, man, that's really what a great team looks like is this unbroken line where I'm not just defending me, I'm actually defending the person next to me, but it requires trust, right? Yes. All of that requires trust. Like if you let it down and you, you, know, you, you go into self-preservation mode and don't protect me, you've just left me vulnerable and now you've left almost like the whole group vulnerable, right? That's amazing. And that's so spot on as a metaphor because like I said, we do the training and, and, and you think of those soldiers, well, of course they trained, right? Right. But a lot of time training, it's important, right? If they're, if they're not in that formation correctly, then somebody's going to get stabbed. Um, but the most critical glue that holds that whole thing together, you said it, it's got to be trust. Got to be. Thing in, it's the same thing in our organization. Yeah. So there's apparently, uh, we're, we're both geeking out right now, but this is fun. I don't always get to talk to somebody that likes, likes this as much as I do. But what was apparently the most brutal ramifications that you could get in that system like especially in the roman army that the most brutal punishment for a soldier was if you broke so if one part of the line retreated like was like i, I gotta get out of here they got scared and they ran to protect themselves they would go i won't even mention what they do but they would do pretty uh, you know yeah uh, pretty pretty wild things to make as an example like that no one else is doing this again because it would have broken everybody it was like that breaking of the trust and that cost other people their lives because you you protected yourself more than protecting your brother. And it kind of makes sense where you're like, yeah, like the whole army is hinging on this one fragile thing we call trust that I can focus on what's in front of me because the guy next to me is doing his job. And I know it's not his life and death and business, but it feels that way when you're on a mission together, when you're working really hard and you're, you're, you're stretching yourself. It's like, I need to know my team is also pushing themselves and is working for our good, not just my good. And then everybody kind of plays at a bigger level, right? Without a doubt. So cool. So cool. Okay. Um, I want to make one, I want to ask one question before we drive, uh, dive into this, because I think it's unique that you guys are doing this. I want to hear more about it, but can you describe to our audience a little more what an ESOP model is and what led you guys to, um, to making that decision? Sure. So um, like most ESOPs, I'll start with the, the latter. Like most ESOPs, um, Miller showed our founder and uh, our, our shareholders, um, which were, you know, uh, very, very few. Uh, Millard's ready to uh, retire at some point in time, right? You, you, you look up, you've created this wonderful organization, you put your heart and your, your soul into it. Um, but, but life is life, right? You reach a point where uh, you, you're ready for that next phase in life. And so as he um, uh, and, and Dave Priester and the leadership team, the rest of us studied, uh, what do we want to do with the organization? And, and this is really Miller's decision. And I love him so much for this. Uh, he could have sold our company. 
right? He could have sold to a competitor. It happens all the time. Uh, there was certainly a good cash value for that. He probably could have made more money. Um, looked at, uh, you know, could we have just dissolved the company? There's, there's a number of decisions you can sure. make. Um, and he wasn't very familiar with an ESOP. And uh, we consulted with a group that does this, you know, it's what they do. They, they educate and uh, help form ESOPs out of organizations like ours. And what we learned was um, our culture already was very entrepreneurial. You know, we looked at the building blocks and the DNA you and I have discussed of our company and said, man, the synergy is already there. The culture of what an ESOP is, is already built in our DNA. And so we were able to um, get a fair price for the company, um, give the company to the employees. And, and by getting a fair price, you know, basically the model is it, it took a couple of years to, uh, you know, to pay, to pay this off with the company's revenues, but the employees never had to pay anything. Wow. Sign anything. It was given to them. And that was really powerful for Miller to say, um, you know, with humility, I didn't build this company on my own. I built this company by hiring good people and they have helped open this door and make this company what it is. So what greater gift to give them than the company itself. And so, yeah the way that it has uh, since he made that decision is really, really inspiring. It makes me really proud to be part of this organization. So, and the, being an ESOP really permeates everything we do now. Uh, it's sharpened that entrepreneurial uh, sense so much because now, um, now every single individual employee owner here at Choke, they are a business owner. The decisions they make to save a dollar, or spend a dollar, invest a dollar, can help elevate our company. Yeah. And that's a really, really powerful thing to know that you're part owner in an organization like ours. I was about to say, there's so many people that will bring in coaches and consultants like us, and they'll say, help help us uh, get our people to have owner's mentalities. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's easier if you actually make them owners, right? Right, right. They're going to naturally have an owner's mentality when they find out, like, actually, this part of this is, is, is mine, you know, like this is, I am going to think that way because if this wins, I win too. We all win. Uh, really cool. Uh, that's why I wanted to highlight that. Cause you, I've heard a few companies doing that, but I haven't spoken to that many. And so, um, uh, anyways, really, really well done. Uh, props to, to your founder. Uh, what a, what a cool, humble move that I think is going to really spark some long-term, uh, life in this company. Awesome. Okay, let's get into the lightning round. I've got five questions for you, Mr. Matt. Okay. Number one, if you can ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be or what is it, I guess? Um, I think the most powerful tool we can attain is, is a relationship, period. Um, you know, build them, invest in them, and protect them. Love it. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing this business? And what would you say is also the worst? <laughs> Only one. Only one. We want to distill it. The, the first thing that comes to mind or the best thing that comes to mind? Oh, man. Uh, I think I've said this earlier, but the best would be surround yourself by, you know, dedicated leadership team, um, you know, uh, and then committed to a, co a common vision, right? So make sure you're surrounding yourself by talented, dedicated people 
uh, committed to a common vision. That would be that would be the number one, and then you know trusting and power them accordingly. So uh, the worst probably something to do with work hard and success would come. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I certainly believe in hard work. Uh, it's a tough business. Construction's not easy. We we work long hours, and our mantra is work hard, play hard. You know we 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 do work hard, um, but. The reason I say that is successful people, in my definition, the most successful people tend to be efficient. Um, I'd say the best word to say is intentional. Yeah. Be intentional with your time, be efficient and focused on where they're going because have, have vision. If, you're, if your whole focus is around working hard only, right? Uh, you know, you burn out, your family will be sacrificed. There's other things I've, I've said one, there's uh there's a, an example that I use so many times as a leader. Um, you know, there's a project manager down this hallway that, that works till nine o'clock every night, you know, and, um, and, and you've seen that person go through a divorce and you just think, man, some people look at that person and think, well, that's the bar, man. Nobody works harder than, than this person. Right. Yeah. And then there's another project manager that leaves at five o'clock every day, but makes good money his teams love him, his clients love him uh, or her, you know, and, and that's, that's the model. It's not the guy or gal that just works. Now there's going to be nights that, that the guy B or gal B work till nine o'clock at night too, but not every night, you know? So it, I guess it's work, work smarter, not harder. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah there's a, um, there's a great analogy that I believe it's Gino Wickman uses uh, in his work with EOS and traction, but he talks about the difference between the sun and a laser beam. And he's like, the sun has infinitely more power. So if you're just celebrating power, it's got more power and works harder, but it's dispersed in every direction, right? There's no focus to it. And so therefore you're able to kind of stand in its light and it doesn't you know, burn a hole through you, but a laser beam with a fraction of the power and hard work gets focused to a single point and can burn a hole through steel. And so it's not just about work. It's about how focused is it? How efficient is it? That's, and that's what you're talking about. I think is really poignant, right? Cause otherwise we're just, we're running, you know, a millimeter in a million directions. Be efficient and intentional with your time. Yeah. Of every day, know where it's going, leave yourself contemplation time, but be intentional with your decisions and your time. Yep. Love it. All right. Question number three. I think you actually, you actually answered a little bit earlier in the conversation. So this is easy. What causes you the most worry leading the organization? Well, um, you know, I have to say the safety, right? It's a high risk, so it's definitely safety, but I think you're looking for a, a, a deeper answer. So we're an organization of people and yeah. uh, in ESOP, you know, that a lot of, a lot goes into that, but the retirement, the health and well-being of our employees is number one. And, and, uh, and then, you know, the culture of the company, like I said, rapid growth, Yep. It's a, uh, make sure that we grow at a sustained pace so we can maintain the culture that's made our company great for us and our customers. Love it. Number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? <laughs> um, Man, uh, to become the most sought-after construction partner uh, based on our relationships, you know, and our reputation for exceeding our clients' expectations. So yeah. I won't put a geographical limit or any other limits on it. Just it's big, it's hairy. Yeah. 
going to be the best, but it all ties back to trust and relationships. Love it. All right. Number five, our most creative question. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past and tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when would you go back and what would you say to yourself? <laughs> um, first of all, I love Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future. What a great, what a great class. That's why I like the question. It just makes me happy every time thinking about it. Yeah, it does make me happy. Um, you know, early in my career, I had the mindset of if you want something done right, uh, you have to do it yourself. And um, I probably still believe that with a few things, but I've tried to go away from that way of thinking. And um, it's a very limiting mindset. And so a good leader will trust and empower, again, the talent that you've been intentional on bringing on board. And so we call that trust to verify. <laughs> oh, yeah. Protecting and following up, but you've got people. And so I would go back earlier in my career. Uh, I wish I'd have made that transition sooner and, and trusted people to do things. Love it. Awesome. Matt, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you for uh, meeting me and my, my geeking out of people development. This is uh, so fun, especially to see in a, in a construction industry where it's not that that maybe doesn't happen, but you wouldn't naturally associate the two with with making that connection that you really care about these people the culture training developing the software that you guys have provided with chode academy the move you made to to having that esop model a lot of really cool things happening uh right here in our backyard on the on the, on the east coast uh so buddy thank you for making time and your busy schedule to be here and sharing your wisdom with our audience it is much appreciated well thank you for having me drew and i appreciate what you do i look forward to seeing you soon thank you sir take care Bye-bye. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.